Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. My uncle Mick, the most gentle and inoffensive of men, took a great and surprising delight in fairs and carnivals. He'd often follow the carnival's itinerary, cycling into bordering counties, to Mitchellstown or Aridlan, to sample the excitement of a different festive place. He liked the romance of the vagabond and transitory crew who'd pitch up for a few nights at the edge of the village. I remember him talking about the roustabouts, wondering at the picaresque and wild way they lived, setting up somewhere, fixing up the chairplanes and dodgems, then trundling off again in a procession of dilapidated, if colourful, wagons. The strong men intrigued him too, how they'd break a skillet pan apart with their bare hands. Once he won the Guess the Weight of the Pig competition and bought cigarettes for my mother with the winnings. He knew, however, not to fall for whatever famous fortune teller was there by special arrangement and to ignore the matchmaker, Buck Flynn, who'd nudge him towards some shady lady in a flowery frock and sandals. One time he bought me a glass bead necklace from a hawker, a gift he called a novelty, waving away my thanks. He'd bring sweets too and twists of newspaper from the fair, hard jellies he called jujus, and disappointingly, a little yellow tin of zoobs. Throat lozenges that tasted of aniseed and menthol spat out when the coating of sugar was licked away. While Mick was allured by the picaresque and strange, he was also the most cautious and steady of men. There was therefore consternation in the parish when the trick of the loop man at the fair in Ballaparine relieved him of ten bob his week's wages for his labours on Jack Walsh's farm. He knew enough about fairs to have no truck with the no-good thimble riggers operating the more dubious stalls. His unsuspecting head was turned that day, however, by the woman planted in the crowd who lured him with the fistful of money she had supposedly won at the same stall. She deceived Mick into shelling out a hapless succession of half-crowns in the hope of netting the big one. The rigged game involved a leather strap rolled into a circle on the table. The trick was to find the centre of the loop, an impossible task unless the player was allowed to win. Mick was allowed to win the first game and see his investment of a half-crown doubled. This success was the bait, prompting him to gamble every shilling in his pocket. While he berated himself for falling for unscrupulous tricksters, he was even more concerned that his employer, Jack Walsh, would hear of his foolishness. Wasting a week's money on a crooked game was no way to repay the faith the farmer had in him. Even providing a bed in the loft and turning a blind eye when the sister, Mary Kate, slipped a greasy rasher between Mick's cut of bread on a Sunday evening. Mick normally cycled over to us on Sunday afternoons, leaving in time to be back for the milking. 
The news of his bad luck at the carnival was brought to us in advance by the beggar man, Dan the Rags. On hearing of Mick's misfortune, my mother rifled every coat pocket in the house for whatever few stray shillings she could get together. In that era of brutal judgment and biting criticism, my mother wouldn't hear a word against her brother. The man who'd shake his head when told of the wrongdoing of others and simply say, Godine, relieve us all. His concept of God as benign as his own nature. My mother would see to it that he wouldn't be without his notch of Gary Owen tobacco that week or the price of the local paper on Thursday or indeed the stamp to post it to another sister in London on the following day. He confided his loss to her when he thought we were out of earshot. She countered the bad luck and offered consolation with her usual saying, the harm of the year go with it. I can't imagine that Dan the Rags didn't broadcast the story of Mick's hard luck far and wide. I'm sure it reached Jack Walsh's ears. I'd love to think that the farmer might have dished out a few shillings to add to the bit of money my mother managed to collect. I hope Mary Kate targeted the biggest rasher in the pan for him that evening after the milking. Above all, I hope that when the carnival was next in town, that Mick had the heart to put the bad luck behind him and go along to enjoy the hurdy-gurdy music, the strong man and the roustabouts and the company of a crowd who weren't all bad. I'm sure it would be nice to be able to vanish from sight, to be able to stop at the whiskey shop till after 11 at night, to consult an attorney and disappear when he speaks of fees, to travel by rail in the limited mail and vanish at tickets, please. Invisibility, you say, is just the thing for me. I am the boy that... My first triathlon was in Skerries in 1983. Not that I was competing, I was far too young for that. But as the son of the organiser, I performed many support roles, including fielding calls from potential competitors who struggled to understand this new type of competition. What's a triathlon, they asked. It's a swimming, cycling and running race, said I. Yes, you do all three of the events. Yes, in that order. What time does the cycle race start? Well, as soon as you finish the swim. No, we don't supply the bikes. No, sorry, wetsuits aren't allowed. They're considered a buoyancy aid. And so, on the 3rd of July, 1983, around 50 people lined up in their bathing suits and took instructions from my father before plunging into the cold waters of Skerry's North Beach. The sport of triathlon in the Republic of Ireland was born. The course that day was a third of a mile swim, a 13-mile cycle and a run also of 13 miles. Ben Brady won the men's race and Dinah Nugent the women's. My dad had become interested in triathlons through Runner's World, the monthly running magazine that arrived to our home each month from the USA. There, he read about a new event taking place in Hawaii that combined his love of running with cycling and swimming. He was involved in the Scaries Festival at the time and thought this might make an unusual and interesting addition to the schedule. In 1984, he organised a second of the Scaries Triathlons, with many more competitors this time. 
And soon he set his sights on organising a full Ironman distance race, which is a 2.4 mile swim, a 112 mile cycle and then a marathon. It would be the first time this race happened in Ireland and once again the course would be in the sea, the streets and the hills around Skerries. He roped in dozens of locals to steward the roads, provide first aid, keep times and other duties that freed him up to compete in the race. On the 3rd of August 1987, 11 competitors gathered in the dim dawn light at Skerry's Sailing Club. My dad stood on a bench and issued instructions to the others about which markers in the bay they should swim around. He was dressed in his new wetsuit, which was actually made for windsurfing. It was the first time wetsuits were allowed in a triathlon in Ireland. At 6.15 they entered the cold choppy sea. I sat in a rescue boat as the competitors swam the half mile circuit five times. First out of the water was Paul Emmett a few minutes past the hour mark, followed by Mike Kelly and Derek Murphy, 14 minutes and 31 minutes behind, respectively. The word transition had scarcely entered the triathlon lexicon at this time, but the word cold was often used that morning. In the changing rooms of the sailing club, some competitors recovered from the swim with tea and sandwiches, while others took to the hot showers. When Dad emerged from the water after an hour and 53 minutes, he ran up the harbour road away from the changing area. You're going the wrong way, we shouted. I'm freezing, he shouted back. I need to get warm. A long cycle lay ahead on roads that were still open to traffic. They set off along the coast to Balbriggan, then to Balrothery along the dangerous Dublin to Belfast road, and then through the countryside around the villages of Lusk and Rush before returning to Skerries. It took four laps of this course to complete the 112 miles. Paul Emmett was still ahead as he got to the transition at Skerry's Rugby Club. In the car park, he opened the boot of his Nissan Bluebird, threw in his sweaty t-shirt, changed his shoes and ran the next 26.2 miles bare-chested. He crossed the finish line in a time of 11 hours and 57 minutes and was declared Ireland's first Ironman. My father came in at 14 hours. Not bad for a man who'd been on a boat in Skerry's Bay at three o'clock that morning throwing down boys to mark the swimming course. There are now close to 100 triathlon clubs in Ireland comprising 20,000 members. Race management has become professionalised and multiple sponsors mean that every competitor receives a gift bag of knickknacks and a t-shirt festooned with logos. Roads are closed along the cycle and running routes. Finish lines are marked by inflatable arches and loud music. My dad passed away some years ago, but not before the current organisers and Skerries commissioned the Morris Mullins Perpetual Trophies for the fastest local competitors, and that made him proud. This morning, I will join 500 others to compete in this year's Skerries Triathlon. As we get ready in our ultra-smooth neoprene wetsuits, with our isotonic gels, our wearable devices that measure our strides and hydration levels, and our carbon frame bikes that are several kilos lighter than what Stephen Roach used in the Tour de France. I know that my father and other pioneers of the sport would crack some wry smiles at our comparative luxuries and probably think of us as a bit soft.
On the morning of February the 2nd, 1922, Sylvia Beach stood on a platform at the Gare de Lyon train station in Paris, waiting for the first copies of Ulysses to arrive on the Dijon Express. She'd gone to enormous lengths to get James Joyce a copy of his book on this day, because February the 2nd was his birthday. And it was a matter of great significance to Joyce that his masterpiece, Ulysses, was published on February the 2nd, 1922, his 40th birthday. February the 2nd is a date that is also significant for me. But my all-important February the 2nd was a Friday in 1979. I was 12 years old and had been living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, USA. My main concern in the run-up to February the 2nd was not the publication of one of the world's greatest novels, but that I was going to miss the latest episode of Mork and Mindy, <laughs> the new hit comedy series starring Robin Williams, because on Thursday, February the 1st, I would embark on a journey to Ireland, and I was pretty sure Ireland did not have Mork and Mindy on TV. That Thursday morning, I sat in the back seat of a station wagon. In the front were my mother and my stepfather. In the back was me, my 16-year-old brother Dan, and 14-year-old sister Mary-Kate, who had an intellectual disability. I remember the conversation was normal, as if we were driving to the Mall. But that journey was the last time our family was together. It was the last time that the word family, as in a family unit, would sit easily with me for many years. It had all started the previous November when my mother explained to Dan and me with a misty, faraway look in her eye that we were moving back to Ireland. We were American, but had previously lived in Ireland for three years. At first, this just seemed like another move, the eighth house that I would live in. My 12-year-old self wasn't too concerned until my mother explained that Dan had the choice of coming with us or staying in America, where he would finish high school. That completely changed the prospect. Dan was the person I was closest to in the family. I'd shared a room with him most of my life. He stood over my life like an oak tree. For a while, I asked him, are you coming? He usually just shrugged, occasionally said, I don't know. Eventually, I stopped asking him, in case I annoyed him enough to stop him from coming. Then came the day when we drove in that station wagon. It had been arranged that my mother and I would travel to Dublin ahead of the others. At the airport in Milwaukee, my brother and I watched a coin-operated TV until the flight was called. I don't remember saying goodbye to him. As the plane took off, my mother started crying. We sat facing two businessmen one of whom must have thought she was afraid of flying. He tried to comfort her. These propeller planes are much safer than jets. If the engines fail, they can glide for miles. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. We flew to Chicago and then took an Aer Lingus plane to Dublin. I woke on the morning of February the 2nd as the plane descended to Dublin airport through brilliantly white puffy clouds laid out over the city like a wallpaper pattern, their shadows dappling the ground. Looking on this scene was when I realised that the change that had taken place overnight might be far more profound than missing Mork and Mindy. 
I reckon it took me at least 20 years to overcome the effects, the fallout of that day. In Milwaukee, I had visited my actual father once a week. That was over. A month after my mother and I arrived in Dublin, my sister and stepfather followed. Within days, my mother separated from him. But for me, it was my brother's absence that made me feel like my family had disintegrated. Dan stayed in America. I've seen him once since then, and that was a long time ago. My mother soon made a connection between James Joyce's birthday and our arrival day in Ireland. She celebrated our day's association with Joyce as one of new beginnings. I think Joyce probably would have liked that. We had a poster in our house put up shortly after we arrived that had an image of Joyce with his birth date, February the 2nd, 1882. Underneath, draped over the back of the sofa, was the green Aer Lingus blanket that my mother had taken from our flight. Every year since 1979, my February 2nd does not pass unnoticed. No other date has had a more profound impact on my life. But unlike a birthday or wedding anniversary, my February the 2nd is marked privately. Over the years, its meaning has changed, parallel to my resolving the fallout from that day. And now, over 40 years later, when February the 2nd dawns, my first thought is not to reflect on a day that I mistook the missing of an episode of Mark and Mindy as significant. It is of Sylvia Beach waiting at the Gare de Lyon train station in Paris for a book called Ulysses about people who undertake their own heroic quests in the fulfillment of ordinary lives. Nothing heralds the approach of summer in Ireland more than our seasonal visitors, the swifts and swallows. They zoom through the skies like little fighter pilots, catching and eating flies on the wing. Today, we're not used to seeing them fly low to the ground in Dublin city centre, but in the past, they were a common sight and a common nuisance. These birds love flies, and there were flies aplenty in Dublin in the unusually hot summer of 1911, making life a misery for the residents of inner-city Dublin. Chief Medical Officer of Health for Dublin City, Sir Charles Cameron, recorded in his report for the year how, on a warm summer's day, he had inspected several corporation dwellings in Foley Street. In one single tenement room, he found an unusually large number of flies. The table and bed were literally covered in them, as the remains of previous meals laid scattered around the floor. However, when he visited the neighbouring apartment, he found it clean and tidy. When he asked the people living there why they didn't suffer the same problem with flies as their neighbour, they said that they kept all their foodstuffs covered. This set Sir Cameron thinking. 
Although his contribution is well recognised within medical circles, Sir Charles Cameron is otherwise one of Ireland's great unsung heroes, having spent his life tirelessly advancing knowledge of hygiene, sanitation and public health. In 1874, he was appointed Dublin Medical Officer of Health and he held this role until his death in 1921 at the age of 91. Known for being energetic and inventive, his response to the summer fly crisis of 1911 was extraordinarily creative. Cameron launched a campaign to educate the masses about the link between house flies, manure heaps and diseases like diarrhoea, which was prevalent in Dublin at the time. He placed advertisements in the press for boys who were not at work to occupy themselves with killing flies. In conjunction with the Corporation Disinfecting Depot on Marrowbone Lane, 100 paper bags, along with cardboard swatters, were issued and three pence per bag would be paid for each paper bag that was returned filled with dead flies. The response was initially enthusiastic. However, only 21 full bags were returned. Although this was not judged to be a huge success, Cameron's enthusiasm for the project didn't wane. He estimated that each bag contained 6,000 of the pestiferous insects, as he called them, or 126,000 in total. Cameron admitted that to kill 6,000 flies requires a large amount of time, since flies are well provided with eyes and they see in every direction. From then on, he suggested that the paper bag should be made smaller. And the following year, he kept pushing the idea. If one million of flies are destroyed, he argued, the purchase money would only be four pounds, three shillings and four pence, minus the small cost of the bags and flappers. He judged that to be a very economical solution to such an intransigent problem. He raised the fly peril, as he called it, again in his public health report of 1914. Most flies live for less than a year, he noted, with a very small proportion hibernating over the winter. In manure heaps, ash pits, middens and almost every kind of filth containing organic matter, the fly finds suitable material to breed. While Dublin Corporation cleaned most of the city's streets on a regular basis, there were still more than 700 laneways, alleys, courtyards and the like in the city which did not fall under their remit and where refuse of all kinds was allowed to accumulate and fester. In the meantime, the swarms of flies in the city continued to attract the swifts and swallows who swooped through the streets enjoying the bounty, while often upsetting horses and riders. A 19th century Dublin ornithologist, quoted by Michael Viney in the Irish Times over a century later, wrote, We have on many occasions observed crowds of carboys and others striking the swifts and swallows on the wing with whips or other missiles in the neighbourhood of the Keys. The boys would then gather them up and they were offered to the curious for the merest trifle. The ornithologist himself had picked up a swift which was obtained by striking itself violently against a gentleman's hat in Suffolk Street, falling stunned and senseless at his side. Today, our urban streets are largely manure-free, reducing the number of flies, although thankfully the swifts and swallows still visit our cities every year. On summer evenings, you can observe them in the parks, chasing down their prey, delighting the watcher with their aerial manoeuvres. Shoe fly, don't bother me. Shoe fly, don't bother me. Shoe fly. 
somebody I feel, I feel, I feel like a morning star. I feel, I feel, I feel like a morning star. Lovely, just lovely, said the man who was walking towards me. His accent was kindly and unmistakably Liverpudlian. It was a clear sunny afternoon in Brighton, the late summer of 2002. The blue of the sky and sea reached out to meet each other in the stripe of the horizon. Beach huts lined one side of the promenade and green wrought iron railings ran the length of the other, where the path dropped down to the smooth, pebbled beach. But it wasn't this idyllic holiday scene that the man was talking about. He was referring to my two small girls, speeding along on scooters, laughing just ahead of me. Something in his voice and warm, hazel-eyed smile struck a chord in me. The busyness of endless housework and domestic chores that is the treadmill of early motherhood, of having two girls just 11 months apart, was still overwhelming. I hadn't come to terms with the culture shock that parenthood brings and my world hadn't yet settled back onto a relatively steady axis. But the sincere smile of the stranger was full of a kindness that made that busy day seem a little more manageable. We stood watching the girls, this stranger and I, watching them spin in circles on the promenade, oblivious to the world and the watchers. Their golden sun-softened hair and tiny agile bodies gave them another worldly appearance as they propelled themselves on their scooters moving faster than I could ever hope to run. The glare of the sun made halos of their hair and suddenly I saw the scene through the eyes of the stranger, through the eyes of someone outside the maelstrom of trying to make ends meet and I felt my eyes well up. I had never expected to find parenthood this hard. At no point in my entire education had anyone, including my friends, ever talked about motherhood and the struggles and uncertainties and fears it brings. The kindness of this stranger's words had caught me off guard. I returned his smile and sighed, They are indeed. And in that moment, I recognised both the voice and the face of the stranger. The self-pity and frustration that had bubbled up gave way to astonishment. I'd heard that Paul McCartney had bought one of the beach houses near the harbour and was living there with his new wife, Heather Mills. But I had never expected our paths to cross. My voice almost failed, but I managed a thank you. In an automatic gesture, I reached out my hand and shook his. Thank you, I said again. Given time, I might have managed more, but a shriek from one of my fleeing children called me away. I withdrew my hand and turned to run. He waved and laughed heartily, and his laughter was filled with that language of joy that we all understand. I waved back and sprinted past the beach huts, towards the lagoon where Marin, my younger daughter, was crying beside an upturned scooter. I scooped her into my arms, kissed her small hands and scuffed knee. By the time I looked back, the stranger was close to home and almost out of sight. Happy face, said Katie, and the three of us made our biggest smiles. Later that evening, I would think of all the things I might have said, the things I might have told him, the music I was so grateful for, how brilliant it was to meet him. 
But later still, I would remember his smile as he looked on at my children. I would radiate in the remembered warmth and I would see again the scene as he did. These glowing girls, this young fit mother, freely together on a warm blue day by the sea. And that view was more of a gift than all the songs I'd ever heard him play. This one song, the sound of his laughter, was doubtless the one that has mattered most to me. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise Blackbird singing in the dead of night. It is 1932, the age of jazz and prohibition. Ulysses has been found obscene by the American courts. You can't buy it lawfully. All you can get are contraband copies of the Paris edition or pirated excerpts published by an actual pornographer. Then a young publisher, Bennett Cerf, spots in Ulysses an opportunity to make a name for his new company, Random House. He visits Joyce in Paris, secures the rights, and hires a leading lawyer, Morris Leopold Ernst. If Bennett Cerf spends thousands of dollars producing an edition of Ulysses, only to have it seized and destroyed, it could bankrupt him, not to mention landing him in jail. So Morris Ernst comes up with a brilliantly simple strategy. Spend 60 francs on a single copy of Ulysses in France, attempt to smuggle it badly into the US, have it seized as obscene, and then challenge that in court. By a quirk of US law, it is the item smuggled that is put in the dock, not the smuggler. And so the case will become United States versus one book called Ulysses. Now, that I know about this case at all is due to a chance encounter during lockdown. I was on my daily ramble along the Royal Canal when, at Crossguns Bridge in Fibsborough, I bumped into, in the two-metre distance sense, Des Gunning. Crossguns achieves fleeting fame in Ulysses. Leopold Bloom's carriage pauses there en route to Paddy Dignam's funeral. And Bloom gazes along the canal, observing a man working on a barge, the bugaboo. Perhaps another case of Joycean prescience, for indeed you can often see a bugaboo there today, being pushed one-handed by an exhausted new parent carrying perhaps an oat milk latte in the other. <laughs> Des, meanwhile, not only marks Bloom's day, but he and his comrades have taken to gathering a month after Bloom's day to mark Paddy Dignam's month's mind. <laughs> Des had a lockdown project idea, an online reading of the judgment in the Ulysses case. A judgment is undramatic, I said. The drama is in the argument. Are there court reports? Could we reconstruct the courtroom conflict? As it happens, I had embarked on my first belated halting reading of Ulysses at the time, a, a lockdown project of my own. And so I set out on a parallel journey 
to discover and dramatize the story of the trial of Ulysses. Like Ulysses itself, that story has three main characters. Stately, plump Judge Woolsey, an earnest young prosecutor, Sam Coleman, and our hero, Morris Leopold Ernst, a lapsed Jew, a one-time salesman, a man who aspired to the company of intellectuals without being an intellectual, a man resilient to the casual anti-Semitism of the society around him, yet also acutely conscious of the judgment of his peers. There were, I found, still further echoes. Ulysses is the story of a couple who have lost a baby. Just over a decade before the events of Ulysses, Leopold and Molly Bloom lost their second child, Rudy, days after his birth. Just over a decade before taking on Ulysses as a client, Morris Ernst lost his second child and his wife in childbirth. By the time of the case, he has married again, and his life bears every outward sign of security and success. But he must carry that trauma. Surely Bloom's loss and Bloom's reluctance to dwell on that loss must resonate. Judge Woolsey may have found his own unsettling echoes in the novel, for he has lost his mother to suicide, as Bloom had lost his father. The judge senses the sadness that permeates the book, and it imbues his decision. I have been wrestling with Ulysses. I find it, as did Judge Woolsey, brilliant and dull, intelligible and obscure by turns. But as I struggle on, I find solidarity in the figures of these three New York lawyers of the 1930s. I like to think of them lugging contraband copies of the novel home with them to sweat over in stuffy apartments on sultry summer New York nights. Trying to get through Ulysses was like walking around without your feet on the ground, said an exasperated Judge Woolsey. Ernst repeatedly tried and failed, before having an epiphany in which he suddenly understood the profound humanity that underlay Joyce's stream of consciousness. Even Sam Coleman, prosecuting Ulysses as obscene, came to think of it a masterpiece and made sure the seized copy was passed around the district attorney's office so his colleagues would all read it. <laughs> Ultimately, Woolsey finds the book to be sincere and honest. It is, he writes, a somewhat tragic and very powerful commentary on the inner lives of men and women. Not only does he reject the notion that Ulysses is obscene, he rewrites American law on obscenity. His decision comes out the day after the repeal of prohibition. We may now, proclaims Morris Ernst, imbibe freely of the contents of bottles and forthright books. It was Joyce gave us Ulysses, but that gift was thwarted by the censors. These men helped give Ulysses to the world, and I owe them one personally. They've given me a play.
If you got a wing, oh, take her out to ring, oh, where the waxy sing, oh, all the day. If you've had your fill of porter and you can't go any further, give your man the order back to the K and take her up to Monto, Monto, Monto. Take her up to Monto, Langaroo, to you. You heard a bookshot foster, the dirty yellow imposter. He talked his Martin Luther in the furry glen. On this morning's programme, we heard The Harm of the Year Go With It by Margaret Galvin, The Skerries Triathlon by Jerry Mullins, February the 2nd by Tim Carey, The Fly Peril by Anne Marie Durkin, Meeting Paul McCartney by Angela Kyo and the United States versus one book called Ulysses by Colin Murphy. The music on this morning's programme was Invisibility, performed by Dearina Gallagher on vocals and Sinead Murphy on vocals and piano. Come Running by Van Morrison. Mendelssohn's Song Without Words Number One, performed by Anita Vedras on violin, Malachy Robinson on bass and Dermot Dunn on accordion. Shoe Fly by Elizabeth Mitchell. Blackbird by The Beatles and Monto, sung by Barry Gleeson. And that, along with all the other live music performances on this morning's programme, as well as Colin Murphy and Tim Carey's scripts, were recorded at the recent Sunday Moselny Live at Pavilion Theatre, marking a century of Joyce's Ulysses. Next week, we'll bring you a full programme from that event, funded by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwaltoch, Sports and Media, with writers Declan Kibbert, Joseph O'Connor, Emer O'Kelly, Rachel Hegarty and Sarah Keating. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. 